Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Marnie Blewett from the Walter and Elizabeth Elisa Hall Institute of Medical Research on this show. Um, please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. Um, you got your PhD in 2004 from the School of Molecular and Microbial Bioscience at the University of Sydney. You then moved on to do a postdoc at the Division of Molecular Medicine at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute and became a laboratory head at the same institute in 2010. And as I just mentioned, uh, you are still there today. <laughs> a question I like a question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? So I think I've always been interested in biology. I was one of those kids um, who, you know, when they were little would kind of wonder about how a leaf was made or look at your skin and think, can I see cells or can I, you know, how is it that you get skin made? So I think I've always been interested in that side of science. Um, but in particular, when I was at high school, um, between in the two final years of, school, of high school, I applied to go to a science summer school um, and went to that for two weeks. And that involved traveling you know, in a, to a different part of the country, going and staying there for two weeks and going into labs for those two weeks. Um, and I went into biology labs and I made DNA uh, and uh, you know, that's pretty exciting and it actually got my hands wet, if you like, got to do some experiments that weren't just a high school lab experiment, but rather more exciting at a university. Um, and that then meant that I was hooked and I definitely wanted to do uh, genetics and molecular biology for, uh, you know, for my degree. And the reason I stayed hooked probably was because I had some really exceptionally good lecturers in that field that I'm now in. Um, and they just made molecular biology and epigenetics sound extremely exciting and extremely cool. And so those two lecturers, one of them, Emma Whitelaw, I did my PhD with, and the other, Merlin Crosley, was my co-supervisor. And um, and they, you know, they had been, they were mentors beyond my PhD as well. So those kind of sem those lectures I got from them from when I started university kept me, kept me hooked, if you like. Yeah. Yeah, coming to your science, uh, that centers around the screening of novel epigenetic modifiers using X inactivation as a model system and the characterization of the molecular function of SMCHD1. I hope that's <laughs> how you yeah. also pronounce it. And screening for small molecules that modulate SMCHD1 activity. Um, I want to start in the year 2008. Um, there you were first author on a paper titled SMCHD1 containing a structural maintenance of chromosome hinge domain has a critical role in X inactivation, um, basically describing the discovery of SMCHD1. Um, could you briefly explain this discovery and what the function of SMCHD1 is? Sure. So um, actually in my PhD, so that paper came out after my PhD, but during my PhD, um, I did a screen in mice, so an in vivo mutagenesis screen, trying to find new proteins, mammalian proteins involved in gene silencing and epigenetic gene silencing. And that was using transgene silencing. So if you put a transgene into a mouse genome, um, you tend to get a multi-copy array and it's recognized as being foreign, if you like, and it gets silenced epigenetically. So because the, uh, the repeats and, and the, somehow our genome recognizes those repeats, the fact that you've got multiple tandem um, uh, transgenes that go in at once, recognizes them and silences them. 
And so we used that as a readout and just said, can we see the repeat silencing, this transgene silencing change? And so after doing lots of genetic mapping um, and sequencing, we found that in one of the mutants, um, the one of the mutants, there was this mutation in an unnamed transcript at the time. It's just a Riken transcript um, that was later, uh, ended up not very long later, maybe a year after I'd found the mutation, but hadn't published it yet, was found to be this structural maintenance of chromosomes hinge domain containing number one or SMCHD1, which I affectionately called SMOOCHD1 because it sounds much more, um, it's much easier to say and uh, it's nice to say anything is a word and because Australians like to abbreviate. So, so SMOOCHD1 is what we were reporting um, in that paper. And so SMOOCHD1, it's, as we found it, it's involved in repeat-induced gene silencing, which sounds rather niche, if you like. But uh, if you have no functional SMOOCHD1, you can't, the female embryos die in utero in a mouse model. So it's got that kind of gave that gave us the first hint it was doing something specific in females and through subsequent studies we were able to find that yes it was involved in X inactivation that dosage compensation mechanism in female mammals and so it's critical to be able to silence the second X chromosome in females um, and that's what we were reporting in that particular paper the the discovery of this new mutation in a gene that had never been published before um, and and its role not just in transgene silencing but also in this fundamental um, kind of uh, traditional epigenetic mechanism of dosage compensation. And then it's been all the subsequent work where we've started to work out how does it actually do that and what else does it do? Because it's not only involved in X-inactivation, it just happens to be, it's just, it's kind of, it's the lowest hanging fruit when we were working on it. Because if you have a dead, you know, if you don't get any females born that are homozygotes, that's pretty striking um, and <laughs> it's a clear thing to start with, yeah. That's true. Yeah, the first thing you went into uh, to characterize SMCHD1 or SMCHD1 further is um, the role in cancer, right? So um, what could you find about the role in cancer? Yeah, so one of the reasons I did that was because I'm where I am now, the Waterlizer Hall Institute, and there's kind of a very long history of working in cancer and in particular in um, uh, hematopoietic malignancies and so I, it was an opportunity to kind of take advantage of my context of where I was at the time uh, and so so what we found was that SMHD1 in a mouse context is a tumor suppressor so if you don't have SMHD1 and this is of course in a male because the females that are, don't have SMHD1 have already died in utero if you are a male and you don't have SMHD1 you don't develop cancer any more rapidly um, just if you age some mice on the shelf um, but if you give them um, some stimulus, so with two different oncogenes, so they overexpress particular oncogenes, one in a B cell um, a lymphoma model using the emumic lymphoma model, then you've added that um, oncogene in, and now the absence of SMHD1 means that those animals develop cancer faster. And we used a second model, which is a RAS-driven model. So in that, that means that you need SMHD1 to limit the progression of those cancers, but... Um, you know, it always needs a second hit, if you like. Just losing SMHD1 is not enough. You need a second hit, which will then lead to accelerated tumorigenesis. Um, did you also look into the yeah the mechanism and, and the function of uh, SMCHT1, um, yeah, especially in regards to chromatin? Yes, yeah. So we've done that more recently um, using normal biology, what SMHD1 normally does, rather than... Um, cancer contexts where we had overexpressed other um, other oncogenes, if you like. So um, for, so thinking about the X chromosome, the inactive X chromosome, and also other um, cluster gene families, because we, we worked out 
by studying SMHD1 and by doing a lot of transcriptomics actually that um, SMHD1 is important not only at the inactive X but also at clustered gene families. So uh, because of through evolution we've had gene families that kind of duplicate and the Hox genes are a good example of them. Hox genes are really important in patterning the embryo um, and you want to keep them silent once you switch them off because activation leads to cancer actually. But um, so if you want to pattern your embryo properly and you want to have, make sure you've got the right segmentation, so you've got the appropriate number of vertebrae, they, each of them have got the right ribs, you need your Hox genes to be um, set up, uh, their expression to be set up just, just right. So SMHD1 silences the inactive X, but also Hox genes. It also, um, it, it also silences um, imprinted gene clusters and several other clustered gene families. So they're not on the X chromosome, they're on autosomes. So what we've been doing is saying, what does it actually do? What does SMHD1 do to the chromatin to enable silencing? What's its function? And so this is where it was useful to think about its name. So its name being SMC HD1 is it's a it's an SMC protein, and SMC proteins um, are very large chromosomal ATPases. Um, sorry, SMC, uh, just for the context, means yeah. structural maintenance of chromosomes. So yes, it means indicating that it has something to do with the structure, right? So. Yes, yeah. So it, so yeah, exactly. So SMC is structural maintenance of chromosomes, and um, other SMC proteins, the canonical SMC proteins, if you like. Um, are involved in regulating uh, chromosome structure during mitosis when they've got to condense down, but also during interphase. And in particular, um, the cohesin complex is in, in interphase is involved in uh, chromatin inter interactions that are kind of um, loops, if you like, between different parts of the same chromosome uh, that have been uh, still kind of a little bit controversial as to what their role is, but they, in, in many instances, um, there seem to be required for transcriptional activation or silencing. Um, and so they are somehow related. And so since SMHD1 is of the same family of these proteins involved in chromosome architecture, the sensible thing to look at would be, is it involved in architecture? <laughs> and so what we were able to do was use the same techniques. So HIC, um, which is a chromatin confirmation capture um, methodology where you're looking genome wide to say, when we remove SMHD1, what happens to the chromatin architecture? And so what we find is not something as dramatic as if you remove one of the other SMC complexes, rather something a little bit more defined. And what we see is that we see these differential in so interactions are changing throughout the genome and the vast majority of them change where SMHD1 binds, that we've, where we've shown it binds by ChIP-seq. Um, and what happens is that you lose really long range interactions, long range being actually, you know, on average, tens of megabases. So large chunks of chromosome um, and up to 50 megabases. There are two regions of that chromosome being held together dependent on SMHD1 because when you take away SMHD1, they, those long range interactions um, disappear. And what, you ha what happens instead is that because, as you, because of the way high c is performed, if you lose an interaction, you need to gain something else. Um, you will just kind of by definition, because it's all a proportional kind of um, measurement, you, and you gain shorter range interactions, which is consistent with you've lost, if those long range interactions would be necessary for silencing, then you've lost that silencing very long range interaction. And instead they kind of collapse down into these shorter range interactions, which might be permissive for gene activation. And we see activation at some of those sites. So in some way it's manipulating the chromatin, likely similarly to um, cohesin or condensin, but those are still uh, big kind of structural and single molecule um, studies that we need to keep doing. Um, 
So it does manipulate the chromatin, but it's still an open question is whether that chromatin manipulation itself is actually what's required for the silencing function of SMHD1, because one does not mean the other, obviously. <laughs> That's always uh, the question with high C and those long range interactions. If you uh, take away the TADs, does it mean anything or yeah. does it do anything or is it just like there and it it's it's not influencing anything? Exactly. So you, yeah. you just mentioned that it's interacting with condensin and cohesin. Um, does it also interact with CTCF? That's a good question. So it doesn't, we can't find that SMHD1 physically interacts, interacts with cohesin or condensin or with CTCF for that matter. Um, it has a similar function to all of those. With CTCF in particular, what we find is that um, the evidence from, from my lab, but also from several others, um, which is always nice. So the, the work on the chromatin structure has come out from three labs and, and that gives us all more confident that what we're finding is correct. Um, so what we find is that there seems to be some sort of competition between SMHD1 binding and CTCF binding. And so if you remove SMHD1, then you enhance the CTCF binding. Um, and they do bind, so SMHD1 binds fewer sites in the genome than CTCF, but they overlap heavily. So most CT, so mo almost all, or, you know, the majority of SMHD1 binding sites are CTCF binding sites, but not the reciprocal way around. So, you know, there are like 30,000 CTCF sites, a subset of those are SMHD1 sites. So we think there might be some competition and that maybe SMHD1's long range interactions, one possibility is that they may insulate against CTCF and cohesin binding. Um, so that's CTCF, but it's also, um, there's evidence not just from CTCF, but also from polycomb. So um, if you remove SMHD1, you also gain the spread of H3K27 trimethylation, the, um, the PRC2 polycomb repressive complex 2 mark, again, suggesting that if, it's able, if, if this is able to spread through more of the chromatin, maybe SMHD1 is normally limiting the spread of H3K27 trimethylation in some way. So in both cases for CTCF and for H3K27 trimethylation, presumably therefore PRC2, maybe it's insulating in some way or these these long range, and maybe that's through those long range interactions or maybe it's something else we don't know. <laughs> so you're in the beginning, you said that you were characterizing the role of SMCHD1 in several diseases. Um, so we talked about cancer and there were some others that I really cannot pronounce. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, I, can, I can say them, yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah. Which, which other diseases did you look at and what is the role of SMCHD1 in those? Yeah, so there are now I think four diseases where SMHD1 is found heterozygously mutated in humans and it's associated with a pathogenic disorder. So there are the two that are the first and the one that was discovered and the most common is a predominantly adult muscular dystrophy. It's the third most common muscular dystrophy and it's called facio-scapulohumeral muscular dystrophy or FSHD for short. And so in FSHD, it's named that way because of the muscles that predominantly are affected. So the facial muscles and then the muscles of the upper arm and, and scapula. Uh, and so this is a really interesting case, I think, and the case where we know the most about how SMHD1 is involved. So these are the patients um, have heterozygous loss of function mutations. So they can be, you know, a deletion of the chromosome arm where SMHD1 is found, or it could be a truncating mutation, frame shift mutation, or even a, a whole series of missense mutations. And although FSHD was kind of an enigma for, for many for decades about how it was formed, it has uh, 
this century been been worked out what what causes um, FSHD, and that is because of failed repeat-induced gene silencing in the human genome. And so the reason that it's firstly it's so cool that SMHD1 is mutated in this disease is because, remember, we found SMHD1 because of failed repeat-induced gene silencing for a transgene array, very artificial, obviously, and yet this disease is caused by failed repeat-induced gene silencing. So they have, we all have, um, an array of um, repeats where each repeating unit is just over 3 kb, so reasonably big for a repeat, they're not little repeats. And in a normal uh, human you have um, who ha doesn't have disease, you might have 20 to more than 100 of these 3 kb repeats all lined up um, head to tail on chromosome 4, and this is called D4Z4. Um, and so D4Z4, each of those individual 3KB repeating units has encodes um, a transcription factor called DUX4. It's a double homeobox transcription factor. And this should only be on very early in embryogenesis. It shouldn't be on later on. So um, it should be epigenetically silenced and kept off basically past the two cell stage of development. What happens is that in, in these patients with heterozygous mutations in SMHD1, even though they've got enough repeats, they should have repeat-induced gene silencing of this region, if that repeat silencing fails because you haven't got sufficient amounts of SMHD1 to be doing the silencing. And so then you get expression of this double homeobox gene, gene DUX4, in the muscle, uh, and that destroys muscle, uh, that destroys the muscle. And so... Um, and that, that leads to the disease. And so SMHD1's role in repressing these repeats all in one place, the repeat-induced gene silencing, and you know, even half as much is not good enough for, for to make sure that you keep ducks for silent. So that's the first and most common. It's also found in a, a couple of other disease, three other diseases. The second most common one is, is very uncommon. It's an orphan disease. Um, and it's called Bosma Aeraia and Microphthalmia syndrome. It's a craniofacial disorder, congenital disorder. Uh, and so babies are born without the form, without um, the presence of a nose. They haven't developed a nose in utero and usually quite small eyes. And obviously they then have to have series of surgeries so that they can breathe appropriately. Um, and in this case, they also have been found, there are maybe 50 or so patients worldwide. They have heterozygous mutations in SMHD1 but they've all been, those mutations are always missense mutations. And that's pretty genetically weird to have the only <laughs> missense mutations. There's some sort of selection going on there. Um, and in this case, we don't know really much about what genes are the targets, what's going on, um, but they're all missense mutations. And some of them at least result in, they're all in the ATPase domain, the enzymatic domain of SMHD1. And some of them um, result in a gain of ATPase activity. This is quite controversial in the literature still, so between different groups that are working on it. So we don't, it's not understood if they are truly gain of function mutations and you have enhanced SMHD1 silencing, but just suffice to say, some of them have gain of ATPA's activity. And so whereas in FSHD, there's really very strong evidence that's loss of function. So at some may presumably SMHD1 some has a target in the genome somewhere that's relating to the development of um, of the, the nose and other parts of the face where when you when it's inappropriately regulated when you have a mutation in smooch d1 and you can't you can't work it so but we don't really know it just i think what this tells us is that there's there's you know smooch d1 has a critical role it's a, we've got a very important function 
uh, at something related to the nose, but in early development, and, and that, that still remains to be understood what that is. And then just last year, you identified SMUJD1 as a maternal effect gene. Um, could you briefly explain what that means and what the conse consequences uh, are? Sure. So um, a maternal effect gene is one where um, the, the RNA or the protein um, are expressed in the oocyte. Um, and so then there are consequences if you lack the expression of that gene or protein for the offspring, even though those offspring um, having might themselves be heterozygous. So because they have a heterozygous for the mutation, for example, so they might have inherited a normal wild type SMHD1 from their father. But the fact that they were lacking SMHD1 in the oocyte is enough to lead to a phenotype in those offspring. Um, and that's because of the role of a protein, the maternal effect protein in those very early stages of development, they're doing something important there. And we know that the zygotic genome, and in this case, the genome from the father, isn't doesn't get switched on immediately after fertilization because the sperm has to be, the sperm chromatin is heavily packaged with protamines. You have to unpackage, remove the protamines, package with histones, activate, and that takes a little while. Um, and so the, the embryo has to survive on those RNAs and proteins provided by the mother to begin with. Um, and, and so there are particular roles. And so in this case, that's what a maternal effect protein is. A maternal effect gene is one whose uh, expression in the oocyte is really critical for the offspring's development. Um, so we studied SMHD1 in this regard um, because we were look interested in imprinting and, and imprint, imprinted genes commonly are clustered. And we know SMHD1 is imported in clustered gene families and some imprinted genes. And we wondered, would the amount of SMHD1 in the oocyte influence imprinted gene expression? Um, and it does. And so the reason, what, the reason that that is important and, and something that we care about is because um, for a few reasons. One is that we ha have a drug discovery program to work on um, targeting SMHD1 to be able to treat disease. So being able to manipulate um, SMHD1 because we know it's really important in disease. And yet I said earlier, they're heterozygous mutations. So that means the other copy of SMHD1, the wild type, there's one wild type copy there in all those patients. So in theory, you could treat them if you can make that one wild type copy um, function um, function well. So um, we wanted, to, so one thing that we think about when we're treating patients with disease usually is what's the target organ? You need to get it to the target organ and make sure it does the right thing there. And that's of course, absolutely true. But you also have to think about um, the consequences for other organs. And so for our germ cells, that's also really important to know, would treating somebody with a, a drug that targets MHD1, what might that do to their germ cells and what might that do to their offspring? So that's there's kind of a therapeutic angle. And also from an um, epigenetic angle, it's maternal effect proteins are really fascinating. They control very important fundamental processes. Uh, it's just, uh, and it's something that we, that we were interested to study. Um, the final thing that might be relevant is that, as I said, we know there are patients with heterozygous mutations in SMHD1. Um, and so, you know, an, an oocyte is itself haploid. So you can have a null oocyte if you have a parent that has one good allele and one bad allele. Um, and so it might be relevant to think about this for the offspring of those patients that we already know about that have mutations 
um, or, or polymorphisms in SMHD1 that we suspect are pathogenic. Calling them mutations is more of a mouse nomenclature than a human nomenclature. So you can tell I'm a mouse biologist by calling things mutations, but um, yeah, lots of reasons. And so we thought it's useful to start studying to start studying what it's doing in the oocyte, not just in other adult tissues or embryonic tissues. Is this uh, something that you're working on right now or what are your plans for the next, let's say, five years? Yeah, so we've got um, quite a broad program of, of what we're working on for the next five years. So this drug discovery program is obviously really exciting. That's mostly not actually strictly in my lab because lots of medicinal chemists and people that are beyond the expertise of my team um, we are working on, still working on what does SMHD1 actually do? So what, what's required for its silencing function? Can you boost its silencing function? Um, can you destroy its silencing function at the molecular level? So using genomics to do that. And we're still working on SMHD1 as a maternal effect gene. Uh, we've got another couple of studies coming out because to begin with, we really almost exclusively studied imprinted genes. And that's a very small set in the genome and also almost exclusively to the placenta where you have a lot of imprinted genes and it's very important for embryonic development. But now we're looking more back into what about the embryo because it goes on to actually be the offspring. So what's happening there and happening beyond the imprinted genes at the rest of SMHD1's targets like I, that I spoke about earlier. Um, so it's kind of a, a dovetailing of how SMHD1 contributes to normal biology, um, how it actually does its job, um, some really cool new structural studies on the protein and how the protein manipulates chromatin using um, you know, in vitro and in vitro assays and imaging, so full length protein and giving it chromatin to actually loop extrude, for example, see if it can do that. And then all the way through to the kind of clinical end of things, trying to get to, uh, to develop drugs against MHD1. Yeah. So to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. And the first one, did you at one point of your career face the situation that you have reached a dead end or did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? Um, yeah, I think so. I have, I don't know about a dead end so much as not knowing how to proceed. I think quite frequently we all get to those places of saying, I don't know how to go on and you have, I don't know how to, what to do next, either because the problem seems too hard or insurmountable or you don't have, um, the technology's not there yet. I think we're pretty lucky at this point because we're at a time when technology is so rapidly moving. Now I find usually it's the opposite. I can't quite decide which of the latest new <laughs> These are the right ones to take up for the questions that I have. Um, and I tend to find rather than reaching a dead end, I have to force myself to put something down because you can't continue, continually broaden your program of research forever. You have to say, no, you need to focus at some point. Um, so, yeah, a dead end isn't, isn't, quite the, isn't quite a problem that I've come up with rather than, rather than refining what is, how is it that we can use all these new powerful techniques to answer the questions that we're interested in and how can we choose which ones are the best things to do first yeah in the last 30 minutes we've taken a journey through your scientific career uh, can you maybe give a short summary about your maybe most important findings or something that we might have missed in this interview yeah so maybe one thing i don't know if this is uh, whether your audience whether this is useful to your audience or not but um one thing i found uh, oftentimes with interviews is reflecting on kind of reflecting on the whole um career is what are the what are the things that maybe have helped you enabled you to be able to make the scientific discoveries what are the um, things along the way that have helped helped those aspects of your career and and I would say um, the really big thing that I've had um, that has enabled me to be able to continue and to be able to make more discoveries has been some fantastic mentors 
And so I think one of those things that is very useful to think about as you're going uh, going along is do I still have the right mentors for for what I need at this point in my career? So and consciously thinking about it when you choose a new role or where you're going to go to is, uh, you know, thinking, is this person going to be a good mentor or not? Because not everybody is, we know not everybody is a good mentor and, and some people are brilliant and others are not. And so making the choices so that you go to people who are going to help you rather than maybe only looking after themselves it has been instrumental in being able to, to make discoveries along the way. Um, and they, I think by having wonderful mentors, it's been enabling because they've been able to support decisions um, or help me get through, uh, kind of navigate troubled, you know, challenges. So funding challenges, we all have funding challenges, publication challenges, and to work through those kind of, um, those challenges that we see all the time um, and to stay inspired and stay, um, I think brave, because I think the other thing you have to be is you've got to kind of go in as if you didn't know what all the potential pitfalls were for you know your experiment. You've actually just got to go in thinking, um, I'm going to continue to go, I'm, I'm going to continue to be excited by it and think that the best will come out of it. And that helps to have other people kind of cheering you on from the sidelines and, and saying, absolutely, keep, you know, give it a shot. If it fails, it's okay. Um, so that's probably the only thing. It's not really, you know, an extra highlight. It's just something that I have found over the years has been really, really important for me. Yeah, it has been important for you, but um, now I think you are at a point of your career where you also are becoming to being a mentor, right? Um, yes, so. yeah, exactly. So, and so I think it's, yeah, you've got to pay it forward. You've got to keep on mentoring. I think for me, the important thing to think about is that I want to mentor others in the way that I was mentored. So provide that same really selfless advice to others and be a sounding board for them and provide the enthusiastic ear, if you like, as well as obviously sometimes the flip side. Um, but but yeah, continue to be a mentor for others is definitely definitely one of the, the top priority. So thank you, Moni, for your time and for being on the show. Thank you very much, Stefan. It was lovely. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.